thought you were going to hit me. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Before we jump into the message, I want to do something really, really quick. I want to thank three gifted female Bible scholars at Redemption Church who helped me with this series on the book of Numbers. So they are, I'm going to have you stand if you're in here, Christina Vaughn, Bethany Riddle, and Marina McClure. So Christina, I think, is back with the preschoolers. She's um, professor of Old Testament at MNU. Bethany, where's Bethany's over here, is a, in seminary focusing on Old Testament. And then Marina's in the back, back there. Marina has a ministry called Read the Bible Better. She's more of a New Testament um, scholar, but she jumped into the Old Testament with us this summer. They met with me every Monday for the last three months, and we would read the text and pour over the commentaries and just let our imaginations run wild. They were really generous with their time, and they're really smart. They made this a much better series and um, made my job easier. So thank you, you guys. Could we give it up for them? Thank you. So we're finishing the book of Numbers today, Safer Bamid Bar, the book of In the Wilderness. And I want to do kind of a quick review. We're going to try to root it back in the Torah, um, in the context of the whole Torah, and which we started going through four years ago. We went through the book of Genesis. Who was here for the book of Genesis? Anybody here for that? Yeah, you still remember it, probably, I'm sure. Um, I don't know, if you, if you weren't here, you may not, or you may know this, there are actually two creation, separate creation accounts in the book of Genesis. To, it, it tells two different versions for, for kind of in different ways for different reasons. But in each account, respectively, there are these twin threats wired into creation. In the first account, the threat is chaos. In the second, it's barrenness. And chaos is symbolized by water in scripture, and barrenness symbolized by desert. So chaos is like there's too much happening and, and creation is disordered. And barrenness is there's not enough happening. And so creation is kind of lacking. It's languishing. And this is all, by the way, happening before the fall. Nothing has gone wrong. This is just the reality of creation. It has this, this, this possibility of these twin threats. And God's plan for, you know, ordering the chaos and, and um, transforming the barrenness was human beings. That was the plan that human beings would work together to hold these things at bay, to order the world rightly, under God's guidance, in friendship with God. So humans were created this, with these great capacities for meaning, for language, great social capacities. Um, and God gave them a vocation. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it or have dominion, show leadership in all the earth. And then it says, um, till the earth and keep it. So, so it's this, you're going to be my representative creatures who bear my image. You're going to work with creation and care for it, be its keeper, and organize the world so that everything and everyone can prosper and flourish. And we'll do this together, God says. I'll, I'll teach you how to be human, as human was meant to be. I'll be with you the whole time, walking together and, and guiding you. But, of course, humanity had their own ideas about what it means to be human. And they went their own way. That's the story. Trusting in their own capacities and ignoring God and kind of, in so doing, missing out on their full potential. And as a result, creation comprehensively kind of veered off track. 
chaos and bareness started to take hold of different aspects of the world. So like in, in the book, so like um, the flood, Noah and the flood is symbolically, it's waters, it's chaos just overtaking the whole earth. That's how the story works. Or like for bareness, there's the famine that drove Jacob's family into Egypt. You know, it starts to take over and, and move things around. Eventually, what happens is, basically all of humanity lost all contact with God. I mean, God was still speaking, but nobody was listening. And essentially what developed then were all these different tribes and nations of people worshiping nature, worshiping like the pagan pantheon of gods, um, doing all these sacrifices and ceremonies for all different reasons to make the, make the crops grow, to bring fertility, to win wars, to, you know, cure diseases or just curse their neighbors. And, and none of this had anything to do with the, the creator and sustainer from the beginning. And then sort of out of nowhere, this guy Abraham starts talking to God and actually listening for God. And God gets all excited. He's like, oh, contact, you know, and pulls Abraham over to the side and says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pull you off away from everybody else, and I'm going to kind of hammer my image into your family. And you're going to receive special wisdom about life and the world and what it means to be human. And I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to bring them back to an awareness that I'm here so that all of humanity can once again know they're not alone, that I'm with them, that I want to guide them. They don't have to be afraid. And they don't have to be ruled by barrenness and chaos. And so Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob um, led this family that grew and grew and grew until a famine came. And they found themselves as refugees in the empire of Egypt. And that's a whole thing. And um, that's a Joseph story. We won't, we won't do all of that. But then that kind of leads us into then the second book of, or scroll of the Torah, which is Exodus. Um, and in Exodus, we, we hear a lot about Egypt. So Egypt, if you remember, Egypt and Pharaoh, this would have been two summers ago. Egypt and Pharaoh are symbolic in the scripture of all empires. They're kind of, they sort of set the paradigm for empire. And all empires do three things. They do a lot of things, but they always do at least these three. One, they commodify everything, give everything a value that's transferable. Two, they transfer that value toward those at the top of the pyramid. So for Egypt, pyramid isn't just like a really fancy architectural achievement. It is the structure of their entire society. This is how they organize everything. Through systems of economics, taxation, law, commerce, education, race, politics, and they, they transfer wealth and privilege up to the top of the pyramid. And those at the top end up just standing on the backs of those below. And then, third thing, they use violence to protect and preserve the system. And they'll justify it by telling people a story of scarcity and fear keep everybody anxious and afraid and competing with one another. And, and this is where they end up in the scroll of Exodus. Jacob's son Joseph had saved, Israel, or saved Egypt a long time before from famine, but then centuries went by and this new Pharaoh came to power who had no memory of Joseph. And Abraham's family had been living there in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, 
And they had been, they were being fruitful and multiplying so much so that the Pharaoh started to see them as a threat and began to oppress them first economically, then socially, in the end, genocidally oppressing them. And in the midst of this, people cried out to God, kind of like Abraham did. And God heard their cry because God's like that. And so God, in response, called this man Moses. Moses, he's kind of an anomaly. He, he was born a Jew, born part of the Hebrew people, but he was raised in the house of Pharaoh and groomed to, to help lead among the ruling class. And so Exodus tells of this whole confrontation between um, Yahweh and, and God's people that he pulled aside and the empire of Egypt. And they could not be more different in their organizing principle. And um, remember like the 10 plagues that exposed the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh's way of organizing the world as a total scam. And it gets so bad in the end with the Passover thing that whole night that Pharaoh just orders them to leave, says, get out of here. I don't want you here anymore. But then he changes his mind, sends his army after them. And the children of Israel walk through the Red Sea and then it closes in and drowns Pharaoh's army. That's, that's Exodus. And there's much more to it, but you know, we're going fast. Then comes the scroll of Leviticus. We, this was last summer, um, where we learn about this whole year spent at the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness and God teaching them how to draw upon a whole different source for their lives. So God gives them just like a whole new way to organize their society, including all these kind of peculiar rituals and practices that were meant to move them past their own sense of like guilt and fear and shame and brokenness so that they can come out and draw near to God's presence without fear. And his presence, of course, is symbolized by this tent of meeting, this tabernacle that sits at the center of the camp. And, and um, so God works with these very strange um, ancient rituals and religious kind of customs. They're strange to us, very normal to them back in the ancient world. And God would just use whatever they were used to doing, but then God would just give it a little bit of a twist so that it would kind of radically transform its meaning. We ran into a, a bunch of words like this. I'll just review for, for those of you who are here two summers ago. Some of these, you might remember them. There's the word korban. Anybody remember this? It's, it's the Hebrew word for offering. Literally, though, what korban means is a bringing near thing. That's what offering is, a bringing near thing. So it's something that they could bring with them when they're all laden with guilt as an offering that, that would... Um, get them past their guilt and fear so they would actually draw near to God. So the offerings, they don't, they don't work on God. They work on us, on the people. They help us come out of the tents and draw near to the presence of God at the center of their camp. That was one word. Kadosh is another one. It's Hebrew word for holy, which at the time wasn't even really a religious word. Kadosh um, just meant set apart, like for a, a specific purpose. We, we think of holy as like, like morally upright or something like that. It's, it's not really what the, the word just means set apart for a specific thing. That's holy. Um, and it, what they're set apart for is this God-human partnership of keeping barrenness and chaos at bay so people can flourish. There's the word Tame. Anybody know Tame? Remember this one? 
It means unclean, right? It's like, it's blemished or unclean is the meaning, but it doesn't mean sinful. It doesn't mean sinful. It just means like, um, really in their imagination, it, it meant something has come into contact with the boundary between life and death. That was unclean. And at that boundary, when that's a possibility, you have to take, ooh, that's just like the best sound in the world. Sorry, I just <laughs> literally had like flashbacks. Um, no, it's Tame, unclean, it means that you, you have come to the border between life and death and you need to stop and be careful about the next step that you take. That's really all it means. Uh, and then there was Badal, which um, the Hebrew word we translate as um, separate or divide or set apart, the people who are set apart. Really, it, it literally means to discern, to distinguish. As in discern and distinguish the things that make for life and the things that make for death and, and the way of wisdom as opposed to the way of empire. So, so God's whole project in Leviticus with the Hebrew people is not just to create a new religion. It's really to cultivate within them a sensitivity to the God who is living in their midst. And they're surrounded by barrenness of the desert and the chaos of an unruly people. God would teach them a whole new way to organize the world where everyone, especially the weak, especially those who had been pushed to the margins, can flourish and find peace. And then to carry that wisdom to the rest of the world. That's Leviticus. There's much more to Leviticus too, but that's just kind of a taste of it. And then we come to the scroll of Numbers. Um, Sefer, which means book Bamidbar, the book of In the Wilderness that we've been studying all summer. It has kind of three movements, if you remember. The first movement is all their preparations to move the camp. This is where they do a census. They count their numbers. The whole reason they do this is to prove we've been being fruitful and multiplying. We're chasing that human vocation. Then they arrange their camp so that it looks like um, Garden of Eden in Genesis. So symbolically what happens is the whole camp is like the fruitful land of Eden. Um, and then one row ring in from there you have Moses Aaron Miriam the Levites they're like a new garden of Eden and a new family uh, like Adam and Eve as caretakers of this new garden and then one in from that layer in from that is the tabernacle itself which is like a new tree of life that's the symbolism of how they arrange their camp and it's only here it's not a tree it's it's a pillar of cloud and fire reaching to the heavens and signifying this presence of God in their midst. So that's the, the first movement. The second movement involves all the wilderness wanderings. We spent a lot of time in this. During which everything that pretty much went wrong in Genesis goes wrong again in some way here in, in the wilderness in Numbers. And there's this series of rebellions and failures and they kind of work their way in through the rings of the ordering of the camp, right? So it starts with the people, and then it happens to the priests, and then Miriam and Aaron have a failure, and even Moses has a rebellion, has a little failure, making it kind of crystal clear that brokenness pervades like all the layers of, of the camp. It's just part of the human condition, and it goes all the way to the top, even to Moses. And, and kind of making it clear and obvious in the story that brokenness really isn't 
um, an insurmountable problem for God. Because God means to redeem their failures and use them to teach the people wisdom about life in the world and what it means to be human. And so, so the book of, of Numbers in this middle section especially is about failure and lessons learned and the character of the children of Israel being forged not through success but through the crucible of pain and struggle and wilderness. Only this time, with all these connections to Genesis, right, this time um, nobody gets banished from the garden when they jack things up. Nobody has to hide from God or, or turn to some other source. Here, they're given rituals to help restore fellowship with God, these korban, the, the bringing near things, and a ton of other habits, rhythms, and practices that are meant to just maintain this sensitivity to God. Um, because out here in the wilderness, there's, there's no pharaoh. There's no empire to trust in. They have to trust in God for everything they need. So if they need food, they have to wait for the next morning for the manna to show up. And there's no hoarding it. If they need water, they have to wait on God. You know, strike, strike, have Moses strike a rock and get water. Or if they need guidance, they have to wait on the pillar of cloud and fire to, to, to move. It's, it's this season of utter dependence on God. As God is just kind of using the desert to wash away the habits of empire. The structure of empire that's sort of embedded in their imagination. And give them a new imagination for how to order the world. And then comes the third movement, which is preparation to enter the land. So they wander for 40 years. The old generation dies. They finally reach their destination. The Jordan River, like the boundary going into the land of Israel... And it's dawning on them here that they're not just entering into, like, um, a new geography. They're entering into, like, a whole new mode of existence here. The moment they enter the land, their status will change. They're no longer just nomads wandering. They'll have land. They'll have a place to put down roots and build houses and cities and towns. And they have been asked to do so in a way that is, that is distinct from the other nations set apart, Badal, right? Or that's Kadosh, the distinguished, that's Badal, from the others. They'll be asked to um, live differently, not just to be weird, which is kind of what religion tends to do. Like, if we can't be holy, let's just be weird, you know? <laughs> but the reason they're set apart is to communicate something to the rest of the world. God's revolutionary wisdom about how to organize things to hold barrenness and chaos at bay. And, and so everyone around them, they know, everywhere they go, they'll be worshiping idols, they'll be cursing neighbors, they'll be doing crazy ancient fertility rites, which were like orgies, and rain dances, and you know, whatever else. And they'll have to resist this and go in a different way. And they have to do this um, really one way. And that is by paying attention to the pr this presence at the tent, the center of their camp. The Spirit of God guiding their steps and keeping them and preserving them. And so here at the boundary between wilderness and promised land stands the Jordan River, and it's, it's almost like Moses especially, he just realizes the stakes. 
And his big fear, he, he seems to realize that the, the danger is that they'll enter into the land and begin to prosper and flourish. And in their prosperity and flourishing, they'll fall back into the old patterns of empire. The pyramid structure of Egypt. Reducing everything to a value. Moving the value all toward the top. The people who hoard it up there. And then using violence to, to like um, preserve the system. And Moses knows if they go back to that, like they won't, they won't image God. They'll just look like all the other nations. And they won't offer this genuine alternative to empire, which is the whole point of their existence. And not only that, those at the bottom, those in the margins, they, they won't flourish if they, if they make that empire move. And the whole project that started all the way back with crazy Abraham, you know, scratching around in the dirt, trying to like reach out to God. It's all for nothing. It'll fail. And humanity will continue to spiral off course. And so, so here at the boundary, there, there are stakes. And there's, there's hardly anyone left at this point who even, you know, whose imagination was shaped by Egypt an empire like the old generation they've all died off at this point it's their kids it's it's their grandkids they were they were children and teenagers when the exodus happened they're standing on the banks of the jordan about to enter the land they've had a very different experience of life than their parents um it's actually kind of like a common thing in in like anthropology or geography or sociology um, especially among immigrant communities, and they're, they're an immigrant community now. Um, there's, there's kind of this predictable generational pattern. You've probably run into it. There are different names for it. It's like the first generation leaves home for a, a new land with better prospects, and they go there and they work terrible jobs that nobody else wants to do, but they're trying to set their children up so they can have a better life than their parents had. But that first generation of immigrants, they don't really ever get to see the prize, like the promised land. And then the second generation, they inherit their parents' work ethic, also all this pressure to vindicate, vindicate their, their parents' choices and their sacrifice, a lot of expectations on the second generation. But they're scrappy, and they know how to struggle. And so they go to college, they have a career, they make money, they have houses and kids, and they live. They're the first ones to finally see the promised land and live there. And then there's the, the third generation who grows up with all that privilege and wealth and affluence, and they take improv classes and gap years <laughs> and post pictures of their food on social media and join tech startups and are influencers, right? Like, I'm joking, but kind of. <laughs> Usually what happens is thir the third generation blows it, which is kind of what happens in the story. But here it's that second generation. They're scrappy. They know they have to always fight for their place in the world. And their character has been forged in struggle and wilderness. There's no memory of um, the flesh pots of Egypt. That's what they call these big pots of stew that the government made for them. They have, they have, this is what their parents were always pining for, going back to Egypt where there's plenty of bread and food. So this, this second generation, they don't know. They don't remember that. They've never trusted in Pharaoh for anything. 
spent their whole lives trusting in Yahweh, who never let them down. They just thought it was normal. Like, where's God? Over there in the tent, by the tent where the smoke's going up. Anywhere they went, they could see it, a pillar of smoke and fire. There was always manna. There was always water. So they had, you know, built this deep trust that God, who lived in their midst, would lead them and, and watch over them. But along with this, this second generation, there's expectations that they'll settle in such a way in the land that their lives will reflect this deep trust and really the character of the God who lived in their midst. And that however they settle, they'll, they will keep alive the memory of the wilderness. In fact, to this day, um, one of the main festivals in the Jewish faith is a festival of booths where they spend a whole week camping in a tent in the yard just to keep this memory of the wilderness alive. That's how important it is. Keep it alive. Moses seems keenly aware at this moment of, of the stakes for all their actions and, and character and their choices moving forward. They need to organize their life in a way that it reflects the nature of God. Or, or you could say it this way. If Yahweh is still going to be living in their midst, they'll have to arrange this new land, not just the camp, but this new land to reflect the reality of that divine presence. And that presence makes demands on their lives, asks them to organize and conduct themselves in a way that reflects God's nature and identity and wisdom and presence. So if Yahweh is living in their midst, they'll have to steward the land differently their natural resources, so that everyone can flourish and bear the image of God. Every family will need to have their own little piece of the land, and they will have to steward it and work it and cause it to flourish. If Yahweh is living in their midst, they'll have to steward their relationships differently, the way they settle disputes without resorting to revenge and vendettas and escalating violence. They'll have to navigate gender differently, giving women more of a role as part of the story. They'll have to steward power differently to protect the weak, especially immigrants. If Yahweh was living in their midst, then their customs with regard to like diet and hygiene must conform to this pattern that God laid out for them. It's meant to you know, teach them that fixing the world, mending the world, tikkun olam, it, it means restructuring their entire lives. And so they just start with food and hygiene because, you know, that's the daily thing. It's just teaching them, you're going to structure your lives here. So we're going to start with diet and, and hygiene. They'll have to observe different rhythms of worship than those around them, special seasons and feasts and festivals in their church calendar. They'll have to remember how God brought them out of Egypt and remember God is always with them and guiding them and protecting them. If Yahweh is living in their midst, then all of their lives, everything about their lives has to be arranged and organized and conducted in such a way that they live with an awareness of God's presence. This God who brought them out of Egypt with the mighty hand and an outstretched arm. You got to make sure they teach their kids about the Red Sea and what happened there. The manna, the pillar of cloud and fire. Cultivate in them a sense of God's presence, a sense of reverence for what it means to be part of the people of God. 
And God promised, if you just live your lives as, as a faithful, creative response, it's not really that prescriptive, just a faithful, imaginative response to the faithfulness of God, you'll live long in the land and flourish. That's the promise. And you'll be blessed to be a blessing to the world. And you'll light the way for the world toward wholeness and peace, for how to keep barrenness and chaos at bay. But it is an automatic. And as soon as they begin to flourish, they're going to be tempted to act like all the other nations of the world, to live like empires live with the pyramid structure. This is all on Moses' mind as he approaches the end. And then there's this bombshell coming. We, we read it earlier because Moses is about to find out he, he doesn't get to lead the people into the land. Numbers 27, it says, Yahweh said to Moses, ascend these heights of Abarim and view the land that I have given the Israelite people. And when you have seen it, you too shall be gathered to your kin just as your brother Aaron was. So, so God tells Moses, go climb another mountain, which he's always telling him to go climb mountains. Um, this time it's called Avarim, which is um, actually in Hebrew, it's spelled with the same letters as the Hebrew phrase for um, those who are passing on. So he, it's like God told him to say, go, go up to the mountain of, you know, geezers who have one foot in the grave. That's kind of what, he's, what he says, those who are passing away. And then he says, then look over and see the land. And when you see it, <laughs> it's kind of funny, you'll die. That's what he says. When you see it, you'll be gathered to people just like Aaron. It's, it's a euphemism for you're going to die. And Moses just accepts this. You get the feeling he's really tired. He just accepts this. But he makes one small request of God. He says, let Yahweh, source of, all, source of the breath of all flesh. So that's pointing back to Genesis, by the way. Let, let, um, um, let Yahweh appoint someone over the community who shall go out before them and come in before them and who shall take them out and bring them in so that Yahweh's community may not be like a sheep who have no shepherd. And Yahweh answers Moses, single out Joshua, son of Nun, an inspired man, lay your hand upon him, have him stand before Eleazar the priest, before the whole community, and commission him in their sight. And you shall give him some of your authority so that the whole Israelite community may obey. The, that phrase there, um, it's way na ta, um, te ta, you shall give to him, shall grant him or, or transmit somehow to him. Mechod um, ka. Chod is uh, a word for, it's translated authority usually in, in English versions. Um, but chod in Hebrew, it means um, kind of like honor. Um, like in tribal cultures, they would say stick. Are you familiar? He has stick. It's, a, it's just a thing. It means, it's like in Jerry Maguire, Quan. It's kind of like that. Anybody, other, only weird people who watch Cameron Crowe movies know what this is. Um, it, it's like, it's authority, but it's the kind that it becomes visible. You know what I mean? Like you can just see it and you're like, oh, this person has bearing that other people don't have. It's radiating from the person. It's majesty, splendor, Glory, it results in this imposing appearance. So like, um, it's often used, the word hod ends up in the Psalms when they're talking about Yahweh as the God of the skies whose glory is radiating in, in, in the sky. That's hod. 
And, and Moses, of course, he's been described this way before. Remember in Exodus, when he, he's up on Sinai and he comes back down and he's glowing and it freaks everybody out. He has to put a veil over his face. That's, it's that, that same concept. There the word is Quran. Um, it means to shine or glow or radiate visibly. It can also, by the way, do you remember this part? It can mean to sprout horns, which is why Moses in ancient art is sometimes portrayed as having horns. You can see it in sculptures and stuff. That's the Quran. It just means he, you could see it was radiating. Like I think of it like when you were a kid and you would draw the sun in a drawing and you would draw these little lines out that meant the sun is shining. That's, that's hod. It's the same concept. Moses had this, this splinter, this splendor, this authority, this, this honor. It, sh it would shine from his life. And God says, you need to invest Joshua with something of that and do it in front of all the people so we can lead them into the land. And so Moses did what, what God asked, and Joshua will take over as the leader. And so as, as Numbers draws to a close, this promise God made to Abraham way, way long ago, it's about to come true. Abraham had to just sort of imagine it. Moses got to see it, but didn't get to go in. Joshua, he, he could imagine it, he could see it, and now he's going to lead the people in. And he will establish Israel among the nations. And the idea is that Moses had hoed. He gave some to Joshua, and now the people will go in. And their particular way of living needs to shine like that. Not just like their piety or their peculiar practices, but the details of how they organize and structure their lives, their politics. Everything has to communicate something to the world. So when the nations see how they do things, how they steward the land, their resources, their relationships, they'll shine. Like in stark contrast, so you have them shining and then you have the pyramid. You know, It needs to be that stark a contrast. And in their way of doing it, everybody flourishes. And chaos and barrenness are held at bay. That's the idea. All because out of all the humans of the earth, this one group of just, you know, ragamuffins went through this wilderness experience and learned to discern God's presence. And the pillar of cloud, like a new tree of life, taught them that God was with them, you know, crackling and popping and sizzling like lightning in the cloud at night. Always there at the center of the camp, reliable. Every day the sun came up and they collected manna and they worshipped and they failed and faltered and brought their bringing near things and, and God would keep working with them. And so here they are at the boundary waters, full of hope and ready to observe the commands. And God says, if you do it, you'll become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And that's kind of where Numbers draws to a close. And what, what I love about this book and what I have loved about it these three months is that I, I love the challenge that it places before us as a church to think carefully about how we arrange our own camp, how we steward our resources, um, our time, our attention, our money, our finances. How do we steward our energies of commitment. That's one of my favorite phrases. Think about that. How do we steward our energies 
of commitment, of allegiance. Our daily habits, rhythms and practices, what are they doing to us? The, the way we shape, you know, the rhythm of our days and months and years. Do they lead us toward obedience? Do they help us shine with this code, this, you know, this different pattern? What's shaping our imagination, our um, working model of reality? What are our kids picking up from us? Does our pattern cultivate sensitivity to God in them? Do we, do we organize our, our common life together in such a way that it reflects empire? A lot of churches get shaped by pyramids, you know, like that. Or does it reflect this kind of haphazard, verdant flourishing? And numbers, what numbers teaches us is that the answer to that will depend on who lives at the center of the camp. And if we can see that clearly and learn to tell the truth about that, um, the arrangement of our lives, you know, what lives at the center of them truly, if we can see that, this, this becomes a key aspect of our discipleship. At Redemption, we try not to be too prescriptive about it. You know, we want everybody to, a lot of liberty to embody the kingdom of God in your own way. And then as we come together, most of what we do is formational. We try to read the scriptures, catch a glimpse of the world God imagines for us, tell the truth about the world we're making, and just confess the difference, and then try to conform, you know, slowly make new habits and practices. And it, it involves engaging in a near constant deconstruction and reconstruction of our beliefs, of the faith of our childhood, and this kind of constant inventory of our habits and rhythms and practices. Hoping all the while that as people encounter Redemption Church out in the wild, that we'll kind of shine, that they'll find us flourishing, not just caught up in the ways of empire, but pursuing peace for all, pursuing justice, social justice, solidarity with outcasts, a life of love, which for us is defined as self-sacrifice. We want to be like this. We want to be a people who have this code, this common life that shines. In fact, I don't know if you ever noticed this or not, but way back when we um, were designing our church logo, we were thinking about this. We knew we wanted a cross in our logo, but when, um, when we de designed it, we decided to build these hoed into our logo. I don't know if you can see them. See them sticking out from the edges, radiating out. They're, they're in there just so, to remind us that um, what's at stake in our lives and how we organize our lives. Redemption is supposed to be like little beams of light shining out from the cross reflects this desire to, to be able to, without like being, I don't even know how to say it, annoying Christians, you know, to shine our flourishing and our peace that is for all people, that this would be on display. So that's why we did it. We just, that's our logo. It always kind of has this, um, see how it's rough? It's like 
it looks a little used. Like this, this cross has been through a lot. It has a lot of damage, right? That's wilderness. But even that shines out. This is, this is what it means to be part of our church. That our common life would, even with all the brokenness, would give off something of the splendor and majesty of the God who lives at the center of our camp. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. These past eight or nine years of just spending three months in the, in the Old Testament in the summer, I'm just grateful for the practice. These stories, these scrolls of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers this year, and Deuteronomy next year, we pray that they would really um, sink deep down to our imagination. That, they would use, um, that you would use them to teach us who we are. That we would constantly be de-reconstructing and taking inventory. That we would know that there are stakes for how we organize our life. And though we might be, you know, from the wilderness and beat up a little bit, walking with a limp. We pray that you would help us to shine and show a different way to be. The world would look at us and see your wisdom and want to join be part of the flourishing. Just pray for everyone in this room right now that you would be at work in our hearts and our lives as persons, but especially as a community. We love you, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The way we do communion at Redemption is um, we'll be released row by row. You come forward, you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. Just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and then receive it. As you do, um, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ, and you can respond, I will remember, or however you're used to responding. The reason we do this is that on the night when Christ was arrested, he was with all his followers, and they were eating a meal, and he took a loaf of bread and a cup, and he made them all share in the same chunk of food and drink, kind of drawing them into one, and he said, um, this bread is like my body and this, this cup is like my life, my blood. And he said, I'm going away, but whenever you gather in my name after this, eat this bread, drink this cup, remember what you're made out of. Literally, receive me into your life. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. He said, whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And so this is why we do communion. Um, it's one of those r- strange rituals that seems odd probably from the outside, but to us, it has this deep symbolic meaning. And um, our kids are coming back in, and, and this is part of it. We just, we want everybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table and let this work on our imagination. Um, so if you would, let, join me in a blessing. Let's bless the elements. Lord, we do give you thanks for this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and the spiritual food and drink. 
And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. One God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come? You